Nolan Peterson is non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Centre. He's an independent defence consultant, award-winning journalist, war correspondent and author who has lived in Ukraine since 2014. As an international correspondent, Peterson has covered conflicts around the world. Apart from his work in Ukraine, he's been embedded with US armed forces in Iraq and Afghanistan and with the Kurdish Peshmerga during the Battle of Mosul in Iraq. Peterson is a former US Air Force's special operations pilot and a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. After leaving the US Air Force in 2011, he completed a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, where he was a McCormick Foundation Fellow. Peterson's work has been published by numerous news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, BBC, Newsweek, the Heritage Foundation, and Coffee or Die magazine. He is also the author of Why Soldiers Miss War, The Journey Home, and several fictional collections. Uh, welcome to Silicon Curtain. Yeah. Oh, it's great to have you on the channel. Um, and uh, just reading that list of your accomplishments, it's it's an absolutely extraordinary. I'm mean, going to take up the whole hour just sort of going through that. Um, yeah. But of a special importance, I think, is that experience you have on the ground since 2014 throughout the conflict, not joining it kind of late, as most of us have uh, when it went full scale. And um, So you must have a wealth of experience and quite possibly... What happened in February didn't come as a as a huge surprise to you. Yeah, so I I began my second career as a journalist in uh, 2013. My first gig was in Afghanistan, and I came back in you know in the spring of 2014, going into summer when the war began in Ukraine with the invasion of Crimea and then the Donbas by Russia. Um, I decided that the war seemed more serious than it was being portrayed in the news. And so I decided to, you know, kind of spend all my savings. And I went to, went to Ukraine uh, that summer, right after, right at around the same time, uh, MH17 was shot down. And when I got to Ukraine, I immediately linked up with some contacts in the Ukrainian army. And I was out there, I was there for the liberation of Slavyansk. And then I was in Mariupol for a lot of heavy fighting that summer, right prior to the, the first ceasefire. And immediately, I mean, two things really stood out for me at that time. Uh, one was the prevalence of the volunteer battalions. So just Ukrainian civilians who grabbed guns, grabbed weapons, went out there and decided to fight for their freedom. And that impressed me because number one, you know, they were sort of the bad news bears of war. <laughs> and they, you know, they really MacGyvered a lot of solutions uh, to their sort of technical and technological deficiencies compared with the Russian forces, which is something we've seen replayed now in the full-scale invasion, but also their patriotism. You know, young men and women who previously were baristas or students or, you know, working in offices, suddenly they're out there in the front lines fighting for their freedom, fighting for values that my country, the United States, and all the Western countries around the world that we profess um, to hold so dear, Ukrainians are out there actually fighting for that without any prodding, without any outside pushing. As somebody who spent my youth in Iraq and Afghanistan trying to convince those populations to embrace democracy, it was really it made a huge impression on me to see this, um, this society fighting so hard for our values. The other thing that really stood out for me immediately was sort of the the intensity of the combat that I witnessed. Even back in 2014, when the war was much more limited geographically and in terms of, you know, sort of the weapons used, I saw tank battles and artillery duels and grad rocket attacks and 
you know, it was just a, a, a scale of, of fighting and an intensity of combat that I had never witnessed in Iraq and Afghanistan as a special operations pilot. When I was in the Battle of Mosul uh, with the Kurds, I, you know, I think that would be the closest approximation to anything I witnessed in Ukraine. But, you know, it really stood out for me like, oh, my gosh, there's a conventional war going on in Europe. This is back in 2014 in our time. And it just felt like it wasn't getting the attention it deserved. And so over the years, I I built a, a life in Ukraine. I stayed in Ukraine and married a Ukrainian woman. And although I did reporting trips around the world, other conflicts, I was always based in Ukraine because I had the sense that this war was just a ticking time bomb, a tinderbox ready to ignite at any moment into a much larger war that had the potential to spread beyond the borders uh, of Ukraine. And it was something that we had to pay attention to. And emotionally, too, I feel like as Ukrainians fight for our values, you know, they, they've witnessed our our cultures from abroad. They've witnessed our way of life, the ability of young people to pursue dreams and to better their lives and be entrepreneurs and to, you know, to take part in government, to advance their societies. They were, were so inspired by what they saw in us, and they're trying to emulate that in their own country. And I think we have a moral duty to support them because it is, you know, it is our example that they are following, and we need to live up to that. And that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because people... Most people aren't going to the front for self-interest or for gain. Um, you know, some may well be traumatized. And as you write in your book, some may go back because of some kind of, you know, uh, hankering for that life. But generally, people are not doing it for monetary self-interest at all. They're fighting for values which are not just local values, but universal values. And some people, I think, get that now. Um but still not everyone gets it. Russia still has many, uh, I would call it sort of uh, assets, agents and useful idiots, um, <laughs> both in the US, Europe, UK. I mean, they seem to be all over. Well, I think that's you know one of the most pernicious lies about the entire saga of, of Ukraine's fight for freedom is that somehow the United States was the, the impetus or the instigator behind the 2014 Revolution of Dignity, which overthrew the corrupt pro-Russian government of Viktor Yanukovych and set Ukraine on a course pro-Western trajectory toward democracy and, and all the positive changes we've seen since 2014. And that movement, that revolution is primarily driven by the desire of the young people, like my wife, who is 20 years old during the Maidan, the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. And she went out there because Yanukovych you know, backed away from the trade association deal with the EU in favor of with Russia, and she was pissed off. She's like, I don't want to go back to live in a Russian society. I don't want to revert, you know, go back in time. I want to live like the EU. I want to live in a democracy and have freedom and opportunities and all these things. And so that's why she went out to the Maidan and all the thousands of Ukrainians I met over the intervening decade. You know, they all say the same thing. It was their desire to live in a democracy, which inspired them to protest and to brave sniper fire, then revolution, and then to brave artillery and tanks during Russia's invasions uh, to fight for their freedom. But yeah, it was a purely grassroots Ukrainian phenomenon that they were willing to fight for the freedom. And some people just can't compute that. They just, you know, maybe they're so jaded by the misguided wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that they can't perceive that this is a war that is literally black and white good versus evil and that Ukrainians are the good guys and that we have an opportunity in a way to like almost redeem ourselves by by supporting this very morally justified uh, fight of the Ukrainians. 
the other thing I, I would say, you know, having arrived in Ukraine in 2014, you know, I was out in the front lines immediately that summer. And then 2015, I was in, on a, I embedded with a unit in Pisky, which is right outside the United airport during some pretty heavy combat, even I mean, this is after the second ceasefire had taken effect, but it was still very intense daily our artillery and you know gunfights and whatnot. And I got to I made really you know close friends with a lot of these these soldiers eight years ago, and you know after many of them were volunteers, but after they had served for a year or two, they decided to re-enter their civilian lives, and their experiences as civilians were very similar to mine as a combat veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan because. When I left the military, my wars were still going on. And so it was a very tough emotional thing as a veteran to know that you still have brothers and sisters in arms on the front lines while you have decided to, you know, basically hang up your uniform and move on with your civilian life. And so these many, this generation of Ukrainians I met in 2014, 15, and many of you know, very brave soldiers who fought some horrific situations, uh, they went on with their lives. But when the full-scale invasion happened on February 24th, 2022, every single one of them, every one of them rejoined active duty and went out to fight. And unfortunately, I'd say that maybe two-thirds of them are, are dead now. They were known as the dinosaurs, kind of colloquially within the Ukrainian military, these, these veterans of the Donbass War, particularly 2014 and 15. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I cannot imagine, you know, having gone to war, worked for years to put those demons at bay, and then to have to grab a gun again and go back into combat and sort of relive this nightmare that you thought you had put behind you. And so for me, I think that is just like a, an ult the ultimate barometer of Ukrainians' national resilience and grit is the fact that you know, almost, I mean, I don't know a single veteran since 2014-15 who didn't go and return to their front lines. And I would I would argue that in many ways, the that generation of veterans was absolutely essential to Ukraine's uh, successes, particularly in the first opening weeks and months of the war, to have that combat experience out there in the front lines and to have those guys, those men and women, leading by example. And this is the perniciousness, I think, of the uh, Russian strategy, um, understanding that, that eventually they believe they're going to grind people down. They're going to grind Ukrainians down. They're going to grind down Western support. I think perhaps they've been a little surprised or miscalculated by that. Nonetheless, they must even now be calculating that even if they're forced to have some kind of ceasefire, which I know... Ukrainians are not going to give them a sort of frozen conflict. But in Putin's mind, even if he loses now, he'll quite possibly be thinking, well, I'll have another go in five years, another go in eight years. And this this idea must haunt most Ukrainians. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, nobody wants to live in a country that's in a full-scale war. I mean, it's, it's, it's hell on earth. Even in places like Kiev, uh, where life relatively resumed its normal rhythms you know i, I just for, for i guess as a war journalist for me it was it was an incredibly novel experience uh because i live in kiev with my wife and our cat to experience war as a civilian you're not an observer not as a combatant like it was as a pilot but to be there in an apartment with my wife and to grab her arm and run to a bomb shelter as shahid drones are exploding down our street you know 
But I have to say that the longer the war goes on, at least, you know, in Kiev, I'd say, you know, even under all the bombing and after the electricity blackouts this this winter and all that, the national resolve to keep fighting is actually hardening the longer the war goes on. And I'd say that, you know, particularly in the, I guess, traditionally Russian speaking portions of the country in the east, like cities like Kharkiv and, and Mariupol even, um, you know, you see that the hatred for Russia has has really entrenched itself because those are the parts of the country that have suffered the worst of Russia's barbarity, the mass killings, you know, raising cities, the mass rapes, torture, all these things happened in the places where Russia expected some sort of latent, you know, pro-Russian sentiment to exist, but that's forever gone. And I would almost argue that the places that now have the absolute most hatred for Russia are those you know, like eastern parts of the country that like you said, all the Western idiots would argue that all oh, these places, like they speak Russian, they want to be part of Russia, like blah, blah, blah. That's total bullshit. Like those people, you know, they are living, they have seen with their own eyeballs. They are eyewitnesses to the truth of Russia's war and they want nothing to do with Russia. And moreover, it'll, you know, it'll take a hundred years, I think, if, <laughs> if even that before, I think there's a national, you know, appetite for reconciliation with Russia. And I think, you know, Part, partly that's fueled by the fact that, you know, many Ukrainians have family in Russia. My wife, half her family lives in Russia. And, you know, to, to feel so betrayed, to be, you know, to, to talk to relatives and to have them like, oh, you're you're lying. You know, you're, you don't understand what's going on. We're trying to help you. And just that hatred is boiling beneath the surface. And so Russia has zero chance of achieving its political objectives in Ukraine. Absolutely none. I mean, the war could is, on, but it'll just it'll just increase the you know the amount of suffering. But there is no path, absolutely none, for Russia to achieve any sense of victory in this conflict. And for the life of me, I cannot understand what they are fighting for at this point. Yeah, I think uh, those who are starting to sort of figure out that something's not quite right, not going to plan, that the sort of 10-day plan to take Kiev is now stretched out to a year and a half. It's <laughs> Some of them might be twigging that it's not quite going to plan. But that sort of propaganda effort is something I'm still trying to get to grips with, the, the brainwashing. Nonetheless, you being there since 2014, you must have seen firsthand the aftermath of the aggressive information warfare, the propaganda narrative surrounding Crimea in the first instance, uh, but also MH17 and the extremely sort of aggressive um, throwing spaghetti at the wall kind of Russian propaganda effort. As a journalist, what was, how did you start to unpick, you know, uh, truth from fiction, propaganda narratives from facts? Yeah, well, I'll start off with one anecdote, which I think is really emblematic of the power of Russia's propaganda. And this, mind you, is back in 2014. So right after I had left a career as a combat pilot and began a career as a journalist, I was out there for the liberation of Slavyansk and just days after the you know, pro-Russian forces had left, I was interviewing uh, civilians who had survived a very intense uh, battle in the, the village called Simeonovka, right outside of Slavyansk. I was walking around the neighborhood asking, you know, the few civilians who had actually stayed and hidden under, you know, in their cellars during the combat. And I asked them, like, who did this damage, right? Who is responsible for destroying your home, your village? And, you know, it, people would say it was, you know, the, the Russians who did this. Some people say it was the Ukrainian forces who came through and did this. And I approached uh, one family. At this time, my Russian was, you know, 
almost non-existent. So I was using a, a, a fixer to help translate for me. But it was a family, man, woman, and their teenage son. And I asked the same question, who did this? Who destroyed your home? And the man looked me in the eye and he said, the American CIA bomber planes did this. Yeah, like, you know, as a pilot, you know, it struck me. Of course, you know, the CIA doesn't have bomber planes, for one, but also the United States is not out there carpet bombing the Donbass. And so I, you know, very politely asked this gentleman, okay, why do you believe that American CIA bomber planes flew over here and carpet bombed your little village in the Donbass? And he told me because I saw it on the news. And, you know, and it was a very sort of educational moment for me because this man had been an eyewitness to this battle. He had seen it with his own eyes. He had lived through it. And I get it. You know, the fog of war is very thick. And when your emotions are spiking and you're in this, you know, very stressful situations, you obviously don't remember things quite clearly. But it's a far cry from an artillery battle to, I guess, you know, bomber planes bombing you. And so, you know, what happened when the war began in 2014, the, one of the first things the Russian forces did was to destroy all the TV and radio antennas in the Donbass to create this information sort of blockade in that part of the country to convince people uh, of an alternate alternative uh, reality. Um, but, you know, sort of more broadly speaking, as Russia has continued this war over the past decade, you know, they're not necessarily trying to blockade our minds in the West. They're just implanting so many lies out there that they are, in effect, camouflaging the truth behind all these other alternative options of the truth. And so, unfortunately, you know, social media, I think, has empowered uh, the ability of Russia, not necessarily to, you know, propagate counterfactual narratives that people buy into, but just to pump out so many alternative propositions that in that process the truth gets gets clouded and um yeah it's you know it's as a journalist it's incredibly frustrating because you go out there and you you are a witness to certain things and then you go on social media and you see some idiot sitting in like you know san francisco <laughs> or something saying well no 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 i know that this is this is what's really going on and yeah, it's social media, I think, has been pretty, pretty disastrous uh, for the ability of journalists to tell the truth about this war, which is unfortunate, because now you have documentary evidence almost in real time of Russia's atrocities, but it doesn't seem to have moved the needle uh, in changing people's opinions who might have, you know, at the beginning of the war, maybe they were sort of uh, apologetic for what Russia was doing, but it seems like people are entrenched in their emotional camps and they stay pretty faithful to their biases, no matter what evidence they might see contradicting those biases uh, through media and social media. And do do news do news formats themselves in some way inhibit uh, you know a proper examination of the facts? I'm thinking here of obviously you know we're not going to include the sort of Fox News OAN activist end of things where you know. Um, they have an agenda. But if you take sort of the intent behind, say, the BBC and others, which at least profess to be trying to be neutral, trying to look at facts with a dispassionate point of view, nonetheless, propaganda is already thrown two dozen all false variations out like chaff behind, a you know, an aeroplane. Um, 
and they get that out in almost real time. Whereas the news media has these condensed formats. They have short sort of news items where they have to pack lots of stuff in. They will drop a story if you have more of the same. So one apartment building getting hit for the first time in Kiev, that's news. The second, third, fourth apartment building, not so much. I mean, it's as horrific as the first, but the news kind of moves on. These are all obviously working against the truth getting out. But the other objective there, the two sidesism, even yeah. though you have one side that consistently lies pretty much 99.9% .9 of the time, um, there is still this need apparently to report what they say and put it you know, in juxtaposition with a more factual set, which is a, a misrepresentation. As a journalist, do you find those constraints annoying uh, and how do we fix it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that the highest law in journalism is to tell the truth, right? To document that first draft of history and to be faithful to your audience, to give them as best you can a truthful representation of events going on in the world. And to that end, objectivity is a tool, a vector to arrive at the truth. But objectivity is not an end in itself. It, it's a way to try and get to the truth. Um, but we should not treat Russia's propaganda as a legitimate sort of opposing viewpoint or counter, you know, counterfactual opinion or whatever uh, in our stories. Like Russia has obviously, you know, they, they lie left and right. They have a track record of lying. And moreover, when, you know, the facts clearly, like the Kakovka Dam disaster, I mean, Russia controlled the dam, you know, Ukrainian missiles could not possibly have caused that damage. It had to be, you know, rigged from within. Like just the mountain of just sort of like rational objective evidence was so, so heavily, I mean, just like absurdly you know, weighing on the side that it had to have been Russia who did this. But to still like present these stories as like both sides trade blame for this, it just, that is a distortion of the truth. I get it, you know, news, you know, News outlets are trying their hardest to remain objective, especially in the emotional sort of, you know, you got correspondents living in Ukraine. They're very emotional about this because they live among these people who are suffering during the war. And you really want to try as much as you can to tamper down your emotions and to stay, you know, somewhat clear headed as you write your stories. But you shouldn't let that desire for objectivity lead you down a path where you allow Russia then to insert lies in the, in the media narrative, the media discourse that clouds the truth. And so I think it takes some courage from journalists to to be very forceful and to say, like, this is a lie. Russia's saying this, but this is a lie. Or just or however they want to do it. But I think we need to do a better job as journalists um, to not let our desire for obje objectivity um, sort of be this this easy route, this sort of easy way to to not do what is sometimes the more courageous thing to do, which is just, you know, try as best we can to get toward the truth. It seems as well to me sometimes. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a professional historian. Although I did did history at university. It seems to me that there's also this sort of um, objectivity uh, mantra. Often will cover up just sort of ignorance, ignorance of history, ignorance of local issues, even ignorance of facts, and say, okay, well, let, this is going to complicate things. So let's just come to this tabula rasa, um, which yeah. is not doing a service to the facts and. It also leads to a kind of hubris, I think. I mean, on that day when the dam was uh, destroyed, 
by Russia, clearly. Um, I can understand why, say, BBC wouldn't want to say, yes, Russia did it. We're absolutely certain, because at that point, you cannot be certain. But I heard both the correspondent on the ground and the chief political foreign correspondent, I think it was, um, on the BBC, both used a phrase, we will never know, or we may never know. <laughs> that strikes me as nothing to do with objectivity at all. In fact, if you look at all the uh, acts of terrorism and aggression over the last couple of decades, including MH17, you might not know on day one, you might not know on day two, but within a couple of years, you you will have pretty much got enough evidence. So that statement yeah. itself is entirely unscientific. What leads journalists who believe they're being objective to say things that are patently absurd? Well, it's hard to make a blanket statement to like, you know, <laughs> I'm not all journalists. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm a journalist though, yeah. as well. It has to be said. That's what we do, right? <laughs> we make blanket statements. Um, my, I think just from sort of my my own personal narrow experiences, um, like I uh, one example when um, right before the full scale invasion in January, there is a, a kind of local at the U.S. Embassy. The ambassador brought in uh, some journalists, and I was among them uh, to just sort of have like a roundtable off the off the record discussion uh, with her. And at this time, a lot of people were still very dismissive of the fact the invasion might happen. Uh, but one very well-known correspondent from a major U.S. Uh, broadcaster, who I won't name, but uh, he he asked a question. He says, so, you know, we just saw the, you know, the Afghan army basically collapse under the weight of the Taliban after America had been supporting them for all these years. You know, should we expect the Ukrainian population and the military to collapse just like that? You know, and I was sitting there thinking, you've got to be kidding me, dude. Like, do you know anything about Ukraine? <laughs> like, yes. you know, they've this country's already been at war for 10 years, like on yeah. their own accord. They've been out there fighting tooth and nail. And it just it just was such such an for, for somebody who had been in Ukraine for a decade. It was such an absurd question to ask, you know, and I maybe it's a question that was on Americans minds because they're similar sort of sort of uneducated or they were about you know what was going on in Ukraine. But I think, you know, it, it might be less of an issue now because so many journalists have flooded Ukraine, but certainly in the lead up to the, the full scale invasion in those early months, when you had this tsunami of journalists moving into Ukraine and suddenly reporting on the war, you know, they had very little uh, background in the country and the conflict and the politics and all the societal tides that were driving these things. The fact that, okay, you go to Kharkiv and Mariupol and pe people speak Russian, but you don't know that, you know, Mariupol was taken over briefly by pro-Russian separatists in 2014. Azov came and liberated the city. And since then, the city has evolved into a quite a pro-Ukrainian place that was very patriotic and very up and coming, led by a diverse and energetic youth population that was creating startups and all these things. They just they didn't get that, you know, and so they saw things according to a lot of maybe like false media narratives. And they brought a lot of prejudice and bias to the reporting because they just weren't educated about the conflict. I guess that's sort of natural when a when a war starts off. Uh, you know, people roll in, people looking to ex, you know explode, ex, sort of advance their careers or major networks. Of course, is the biggest story in the world. They have to be there. Um, but I do think that 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 sort of lead up time, that spin up time to educate themselves on the conflict, um, may have led to some sort of you know 
sloppy reporting. I don't know what we call it sloppy reporting, but just sort of like, you know, ignorant reporting, ignorant questions. I mean, for me, it was so frustrating. <laughs> and this is, I guess, perhaps my my ego talking more than you know, any professional critiques. But, you know, back in 2014, I was writing lots of stories about how Ukrainians were adapting commercial drones for use in combat, for ISR, to dropping grenades. You see the Ukrainians improvising all these ad hoc tactics and techniques and technologies to fight the more sophisticated Russian military. You saw average civilians taking up arms back in 2014 to fight for the country. And all these things were sort of reported as revelations in 2022. And it's like, well, maybe you should have been listening to the handful of journalists who were here for all these years reporting on this. And so I think there's a little bit of, you know, the media chases the story of the minute. And because of that, you know, they didn't have this deep-seated kind of knowledge of what was going on in Ukraine because up until the full-scale invasion, I think I was one of the the only, maybe a handful of Western correspondents permanently based in Ukraine. And now every major outlet has got a, a bureau in Kyiv because of the full-scale invasion. But there was an active land war going on in Europe since 2014, and most people just didn't care. Most news outlets just turned a blind eye toward it, never realizing that this had all the potential to blow up into this World War II-style invasion. So I think that in some ways uh, we see the consequences of that and some of this reporting that could have been better after the full-scale invasion. And of course, many of those correspondents who are charged with looking at activity within the whole region, the whole sort of Eastern European region, many would have actually been based in Moscow and would have, you know, even without intending to, would have seen things through a Moscow lens, um, would have had friends who in their company, you know, talked about sort of, you know, had liberal conversations, etc. So they've even perhaps got a distorted view of, you know, Russian society in itself. This this is the one that bugs me. Oh, but all my friends are liberal. They're like, yes, but they don't tell you everything they think. And maybe yeah. they themselves under duress don't know exactly what they think until pressed to it. So there's, there's an extraordinary inbuilt bias to the way the media was sort of set up, perhaps slanted towards a, a Russian point of view. Absolutely. I mean, I think that was that was a an issue that many Ukrainians were even complaining about prior to February 2022, was that, you know, most major outlets would have their, you know, people from their Moscow bureau kind of parachute in Ukraine for a few days, hire a fixer, get a couple of stories and then leave. And that was sort of the extent of their their Ukraine coverage. And so whether or not, you know, there's some sort of implicit bias that they absorb by being in Moscow, you know, I don't, I would say probably, but, you know, you can't really know for sure. But I think more than anything, it's just the fact that, you know, you can't really arrive in a country for three or four days and have a fixer feed you a couple of stories and then feel like you're faithfully, you know, reporting on what's going on. You need to, like, now I'm, it's much better because you have journalists from all the major outlets living in Ukraine living within society and because of that you can enterprise your own stories you can see trends that aren't being sort of hand fed to you by fixers but you say like oh my gosh like i met this lady in the line the grocery store and what an incredible story or you have friends and you start to understand sort of these these undercurrents going on in society you sit in the bomb shelters with civilians you get to know soldiers like all these things contribute to this much more diverse complete understanding of the society you're covering and that's impossible to do when you just jet in for a few days or go out, you know, get somebody to bust you out to the front lines and you sit there like I'm under fire and you leave, you know, like you're not really understanding everything uh, that's going on. So I think 
you know, what I did in 2014, when I was a decade ago, when I was a brand new journalist, I understood that the war is incredibly important. And so I took a huge leap of faith and moved to Ukraine and dedicated a decade of my life to covering that conflict. And I feel like now I'm leaving, you know, I transitioned into a sort of a new chapter in my life as a think tank expert and consulting for firms that are providing air defenses to Ukraine and becoming more of an expert and an analyst of the of the conflict rather than just a reporter on it. Uh, but I think that I, I would I'd be encouraged to see a new generation of young uh, journalists who've got fire in their bellies to, to go do what I do, you know, move to Ukraine, become an expert, learn the language, make friends and become the next generation of people who can carry the torch, so to speak, and, and covering this war, which, you know, whether the full scale war ends this year or in five years, I think that Ukraine is going to be a hotbed of of incredibly important stories with geo, geopolitical repercussions for, for decades to come. So, you know, we, we need that, those journalists to be on the ground. And I hope that the major outlets and major newspapers continue to see the value in um, sort of financing a permanent footprint in Ukraine, because we should not let this war become forgotten again, because it will, like it has already done, once again, become a war we no longer have the luxury uh, of ignoring and i think there's 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 other interesting stories there as you say which don't get a huge amount of attention and in the long term have far more importance than, than you know the day-to-day -day under fire or whatever it is um yeah. and these are stories about how a country could emerge from the post-soviet corrupt nepotistic uh environment uh and could actually tackle successfully i mean that's still an ongoing process of course but tackle successfully issues of the emergence of civil society, judicial reform, um, reduce the influence of oligarchs within society. Now, these battles by no means won, but at the same time, innovating tech, innovating um, you know, informational resilience, media literacy. And as you say, all of those like techniques that people have been experimenting with because they had to in order to survive. But there is a wealth of this experience and experimentation that makes democracy more resilient and someone's going to have to get those stories out of ukraine because i feel that our democracies are in trouble and we we have to learn from that experience absolutely yeah i mean i could not agree with you more on that point there's a a great quote from a rocky movie <laughs> uh when rocky he was talking to his son he says it's not about how hard you hit it's about how hard you can get hit and keep fighting back and so for me, I think, without a doubt, the most important lesson I've learned in the last nine years of living in Ukraine, particularly in the last 16 months of the full-scale invasion, is how incredibly important the resilience and the grit of the civilian population has been to Ukraine's military effort to defend the homeland. Um, when Russia first invaded, into, when the full-scale invasion happened in February 2022, you know, I remember being in a bomb shelter, like on February 25th, like the second day of the war, and you're in this shelter with hundreds of people, and you can hear the artillery outside, the Russians are already at the city gates by that point, and within that bomb shelter, like the people weren't saying a word, you know, it's really oddly quiet inside that space, with the except, exception of the sounds coming from their cell phones. And what they were doing is they were listening over and over again 
to Zelensky's speech saying that he would not leave the city. They were replaying it over and over. It's like they were drawing so much strength from that. And I think I knew in that moment, like Russia's, they're screwed. There's no way they're going to be able to beat this country. And so I think that, you know, as we, like you said, we in the West look toward this new era of warfare uh, in which we potentially might find ourselves at war against a peer adversary like China or Russia, kind of hard to call Russia a peer adversary after the performance in Ukraine, but, you know, a major, a major power. Um, we understand that our civilians are going to be, they are in some ways, the civilian population, civilian will to keep going, to keep, you know, to support the country's military effort is sort of our weak spot. If Russia or China could turn off the lights on the East Coast of America or shut down the internet or shut down our cell phones or whatever, like, will we demonstrate the same resolve to support the war effort like the Ukrainians have? You know, I, I don't know. And I think the Ukrainians have been, Ukrainian civilian population has been incredibly um, tough. And actually, you know, the more they suffer, it seems the more they dig in their heels and realize that they, they have to win uh, this war. But in 2000. 14, when I first arrived, Ukraine's military was, you know, in a very bad shape. They only had a few hundred combat-ready soldiers, I think, after the invasion of, of Crimea in the February, March 2014. And you, know, you see soldiers on the front lines, civilians, you know, with like duct taped together, Kalashnikovs wearing sandals in combat. Um, but the, the volunteers, the civilian volunteers at that time really like spoiled Russia's plans to take over the Donbass. They reversed Russia's unconventional invasion, stalled the war, and then Russia had to throw in its own regular forces to kind of get the war to the edge of Mariupol and, and all that, and force the first ceasefire upon, upon Ukraine. But at that point in the war, you, know, you had civilian volunteers taking supplies out to the front line to civilian soldiers. And then over the years, you have civilians who were like developing these new drone technologies, developing smartphone apps to remotely target artillery, learning how to jerry-rig you know, electrical connections off of old power line, all these crazy things that civilians were doing. And I think that there's always been this sort of like this, this fusion between the civilian sort of support for the war effort and, and then regular military's operations. And over the years, the regular military in Ukraine has obviously made leaps and bounds, become a very competent professional force. But those ties to the civilian influence have remained. And I think that that has promoted sort of this entrepreneurial Silicon Valley startup mentality within the military, because they still have this infusion of sort of civilian creativity in the process. And that has allowed them to be so adaptive, so transformative, the ability that you know, hand them a new Western weapon and in like two weeks, they can use it in combat, right? Like as a U.S. former U.S. Uh, military member, I, I can't imagine being handed something totally foreign and being able to use it immediately in combat. It's just crazy. We trained for months or years before we're ready to go into combat with the tech, new technology. So, yeah, I think that that, the, the, that sort of nexus, that fusion between the civilian and military war efforts, war efforts has made Ukraine really nimble in their ability to develop new tactics, new technologies, and to constantly be, an adapt, to, to be uh, adaptive in this war. Russia has adapted too, but I would, I would definitely argue that Ukraine is continuing to outpace the Russians' ability to adapt. And you look at this recent drama with Wagner and how Wagner is able to just kind of roll down a road to within 200 kilometers of Moscow. And from what it looks like and what I think the general consistent consensus of many experts, 
is that the Russian military within Russia was like really paralyzed by confusion and a lack of people, lack of soldiers or commanders willing to take any initiative to, to do something to stop this. And you know, those are the same problems that really plagued Russia at the beginning of the war when they tried to, to take Kiev and they failed to take Kiev. So I think, you know, Russia can develop new tactics. They can put new technologies on the battlefield, but they can like any army is a reflection of the society that creates it. And Russia is a dystopian authoritarian regime that does not promote free thinking and innovate in, you know, their civilians taking the, the initiative, much less their soldiers. And that is really paralyzing their ability to adapt to sort of unforeseen circumstances. And I think in the end, that will be the reason, one of the very important reasons why Ukraine emerges victorious is because their society, quite frankly, is more unified, tougher than Russian society, and they foster a spirit of free thinking and adapt, you know, adaptiveness and innovation that the Russians just could never match. And to tie that all up together with this topic of uh, a free press, it seems then that freedom of speech, the ability to delegate authority power to others, or if in the case of civil society or innovators, someone decides to go ahead and fix a problem, you you don't stop them from doing that. You let people do these experiments. It right. seems that, that freedom of speech, freedom of press is also an intrinsic aspect of this. And you can't have that innovation that dynamism without also having you know all those i would say luxuries of a free society um russia can't do that because if you give people freedom to innovate they will come and challenge all the other components of the autocratic house of cards and then it all collapses exactly that's a great point i mean i think since 2014 you living in kiev you know for years there's like a, a new protest every two or three days in kiev of some issue or whatever like there's a culture of protests that emerged in ukraine and people and i think one really positive outcome of yeah sort of unforeseen positive outcome of a bad situation which was the invasion of the donbass in 2014 is like i mentioned you had this civil society effort that basically saved the country saved the military and allowed ukraine to fight another day effectively and, and basically stalled Russia's war plans in the East for almost a decade until the full-scale invasion. But that civilian effort, like after sort of the, the existential crisis passed in 2014-15, a lot of those volunteers no longer felt like they had to be on the front lines 24-7. And so a lot of them then returned to their hometowns. And Mariupol is a perfect example where a lot of the city councilmen, a lot of the local leaders, the local businessmen, they were all volunteers from the beginning of the war. And so that they felt like they had a vested interest in society. They felt like, okay, you know, if I'm willing to fight and die for my country, now I have the right to go demand the mayor fix the pothole down my street. You know, like there's this, there's this agency that they felt. And that was really born, I think, of the collective effort to defend the homeland in 2014. Um, but when you look at Russia, like, I was just, there's a, a telegram channel of a bunch of Wagner guys that I've been reading during all his latest drama with uh, Prigozhin. And one thing, one of these, these Russian soldiers said, he said, initiative punishes the initiator. And that's like the opposite mentality that you have in Ukraine right now, where they, they encourage, I mean, there's definitely like, I won't, you know, put rosy colored glasses on this and pretend like there aren't a lot of vestiges of the Soviet system still alive and well within Ukrainian military and in society. However, I'd say, as a rule, the general trend right now is that you have people who are willing to buck the system. 
and you have mid-level officers primarily guys men and women who have experience in the front lines since 2014 who encourage the troops under their command to come up with innovative solutions and they don't punish them for it you know they don't there, there's not this resistance within the ranks or within society to to be sort of a, a disruptive force right a steve jobs or something like that like that is an idea a mindset that is fostered within ukraine and so i think that that will that already has led them to overperform in the war and i think that's going to be a really really positive uh trend for the country in their reconstruction after the war and like i mentioned that that civil society and effort effort in 2014 propelled sort of the evolution of civil society more broadly as far as you know efforts to encourage free speech to root out corruption to encourage younger people to get into office but now you're going to have a, a generation of ukrainians society-wide who contributed to the war effort i mean almost at this point i'd say you know like the overwhelming majority of people have contributed in some way to the war effort and so when the war is over the tolerance corrupt for corruption is going to be like you know zero for people because they they have a vested interest now they've invested their lives their blood years of their life they've all lost people they cared about to this war and they're not going to let the, the state the you know the this the future of their country be jeopardized uh by these sort of sort of retrograde forces that want to return corruption to ukraine so i think that ukrainian society will be positively altered by the war because now you have a generation of people who aren't going to be willing to take that that bs any longer basically the last question i think you know to end i mean this has generally uh been one of the most positive conversations and the most uplifting we've had so far i mean some of them can be especially when you focus on russia they can be rather depressing um but if we focus on what victory means it suggests that for this resilient society to carry on evolving to carry on exercising its agency and control it really requires ukraine to have conquered back all of the territories that come with its uh, you know, traditional legal jurisdiction from 1991. It suggests that victory will need to encompass other things as well and getting the kidnapped children back, getting some kind of restitution or compensation, but above all, stable borders so that the economy can rebuild, so that corruption can be tackled, so that all these things can move forward without that sort of uncertainty that would come with a frozen conflict. Do you agree with that? And are all Ukrainians pretty much united towards that maximalist objective? I think, you know, the, the outcome that that would be disastrous for Ukraine is if there is some sort of frozen conflict that simmers at a, at a low intensity, like the war in the Donbass did for another decade or a generation. Number one, that prevents or it's at least very dramatically slow rolls Ukraine's ability to integrate with the eu ever joining nato and it sucks talent from the, the civilian population it sucks energy from you know society it sucks money it's just it's a drain on the country and the war in the donbass was effectively a knife in ukraine's side that russia would twist at its at its pleasure to sort of you know slow down ukraine's pro-democratic evolution and like that that is an outcome that i think most ukrainians the overwhelming majority of ukrainians uh, reject and you see the share of ukrainians as the war goes on who who say that they are unwilling to make any concessions to russia for the sake of peace that share has gone up the longer the war goes on and i think there's certainly a perception among many ukrainians you know their country has been under you know russian oppression not just 
for the last eight years, uh, but for the last century. And so they, even longer, to be honest with you, but, you know, since the Soviet Union uh, came into fruition about a century ago, they've effectively been under Russia's imperial rule. Um, and so I think that many Ukrainians see this as a historic moment to finally end this, to stop this, this corruptive outside oppressive force, which has prevent them, prevented them from flourishing as a nation and a society and a country. And so I, I, you know, Ukrainians see this as their moment. You know, this is it. They're, they're not willing to kick the can down the road. They don't want their children or their grandchildren to have to fight another war with Russia. So I see, you know, it's not so much, I think, there, you know, there's two distinctions that I think are important to make for Americans. Number one is that historical element where, you know, this is not just about this war. This is about a century of oppression, which Ukrainians are trying to, uh, to, to put behind them once and for all. And the other is, you know, we're not talking about lines on a map here. We're talking about millions of Ukrainian civilians who are now subject to deportation, mass rape, mass murder, torture, having their homes, you know, destroyed or property stolen, like really barbaric things that we thought we had left behind in the last century are happening again to millions of Ukrainians. And so for many Ukrainians, it's not about necessarily getting their borders back. It's about liberating their 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 fellow citizens who are living under just, just objectively just barbaric conditions or going through hell on earth. And so I think there's like a moral imperative many Ukrainians feel to liberate, um, you know, that territory primarily to liberate their civilians. And the longer the go war goes on, the more Russia commits more, you know, they continue to commit more atrocities. And those atrocities continue to incriminate Russia in the, in the eyes of the Ukrainian people and entrench the Ukrainian nation's resolve uh, to keep fighting. Um, I think, you know, the one contingent aspect of all this is that Ukraine's war effort is dependent on continued uh, military aid from the West. So I think that if military aid from the West will continue unabated, no question in my mind, Ukraine's going for it. They're going to get back all their territory as they rightfully should. If they feel like there is a an expiration date, they may be forced by circumstances to maybe, you know, at some point, you know, conceding some somehow to, to Russia or stopping their advance. But I think so long as they have the, you know, the hardware and the material to continue this, you know, they see this as their historic duty to, you know, stop this once and for all. Um, but I, yeah, I just hope that we in the West demonstrate a similar amount of grit as the Ukrainians have, because, you know, if we think we can turn our eye and pretend like China is the biggest threat in the world, well, you know, guess what? China's number one military ally is Russia. If we want to weaken China, how better than to make sure that Russia does not accomplish its militaristic goals in Ukraine? So, um, yeah, I think that as long as we continue to support Ukraine, they will get their territory back. And I believe in doing so, uh, you know, they will secure a peaceful, prosperous future that that they've never been able to achieve before. And of course, Ukrainians, as you say, not just fighting for land, they've also, and I think this probably shocked a lot of people when the atrocities of European butcher, the, uh, you know, the theater attack in Mariupol and the numerous other barbarities I think even some Ukrainians are shocked. I mean, anyone studying Russian history knows that this stuff went on, mm -hmm. uh, as you say, 70 years ago, 100 years ago. But to see it repeated in the 21st century and to have the realization 
that if you know Russia wins, there will not just be no Ukraine on the map, but Ukrainian identity, literature, cultural artifacts, all of it would have been erased, erased from the earth, and Russians would have done their damnedest to erase it from history as well. I think that realization is very motivating, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Russia didn't go after Kiev because they're trying to take territory in the Donbass, right? Like that, they, Russia wants, like you said, they want to eliminate Ukraine. You know, that, that word <laughs> from our lexicon, they want to erase Ukraine as not only as a country, but as a culture, a society, a nation, you know? And so I think that Ukrainians understand that. And, and, and if, God forbid they have to sign or they have to pause the war or whatever, you know, concede to some sort of frozen conflict. They Ukrainians understand in the West. We might be like, okay, when we avoided World War III, we're good. No, no, no. This is just another pause button with Russia's eventual goal, which is to erase Ukraine from the face of the earth as a sovereign country, divide it up, you know, whatever they're going to try and install a puppet government or whatever. Russia's ultimate goal is to you know, eliminate Ukraine as, as a sovereign country and Ukrainians understand that. And so they understand that you, you cannot, how do you negotiate with a country that wants to destroy you? Like what, like what bargaining chips do you have? You can destroy half of us or you can sort of quarter of like, you know what, how do you, how do you negotiate with that? You win or you die. And so Ukrainians are in the situation where they're fighting now. And I think that's a huge distinction. I think after 2014, 2022, I witnessed a country fighting for its freedom. And over the last 16 months, I've now seen this country fighting for its survival. And because of that, their will to fight, their resolve to carry this through to victory is sort of unbreakable. And they, I, I believe that, you know, even you now I mentioned if, if the West's military supplies dry up, you know, Ukraine may not be able to prosecute a major offensive to get his land back. Well, I think they'll keep fighting. They'll fight with sticks and stones for as long as they have to. So the argument that the most humane thing to do is to stop the war by curtailing the flow of arms, like that's not going to stop the war. Ukrainians aren't going to just, okay, we'll we'll be genocided into oblivion because we don't have high Mars anymore. No, they're going to keep fighting no matter what to, to exist, to save their country, to save, men want to save their wives from being raped and they want to save their children from being raped and murdered. Like that, you know, that desire to, to exist doesn't go away just because you don't have the latest Gucci weapons in hand. It, you know, they will fight no matter what. And so without a doubt, the most humane moral thing we can do is to let to shorten the timeline of that victory, of that certain victory, uh, by giving Ukraine what it needs today uh, to win the war. Well, that's a perfect statement to end the conversation on. Hopefully people will take that away and put pressure on their representatives, write letters, just do something. I mean, it's it's not enough just to passively watch the videos. I encourage people to go out and just spread this message that Ukraine needs to win sooner and at less cost to its best and brightest people. Nolan, thanks so much for the work you do. Thanks so much for the time you've dedicated to have this conversation for the channel. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.